into the background. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. And apparently someone has stolen my Bible, so I'm going to do something very awkward. We're a small church, it's okay. Mark chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, you probably have a Bible app. If not, there are black Bibles in the pews in front of you. You can pull those out. We've been preaching verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. And one of the themes that we've seen over and over and over again has been the disciples kind of inability to grasp truth, the way that they kind of keep messing up time and time again. The first example of their ignorance is seen in Mark chapter 4 as Jesus is teaching on the parable of the sower. The disciples don't understand the parable, and Jesus tells them, if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand any of the parables? Soon after this, the disciples were in great danger on the sea. And rather than trusting in their Savior, they cried out in fear, and they said, don't you care about us? Don't you see that we're going to die? Later, Jesus would be surrounded by a crowd, and somebody touched him. And Jesus said, who touched me? And his disciples would ask, who touched you? Look at all these people. Why would you ask such a question? Shortly thereafter, Jesus sends the disciples out on their first mission. Things seemed to go well on that mission, but when they come back, they have a little bit of a braggadocio. They're telling Jesus of all the things that they said and did and accomplished. And then Jesus says, well, okay, if you guys are so accomplished, here, there's 5,000 people out here. I need you to feed them all with a couple loaves of bread and a few scraps of fish. Obviously, they're not able to do that. The, the disciples are humbled, but did they learn? Well, apparently not, because shortly thereafter, Mark tells us, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hard. Not that long after the disciples and Jesus fed 5,000 people, they would once again be out in the middle of the wilderness, and there would be a large camp of people who needed to be fed, around 4,000 people. Did the disciples remember the miracle where Jesus fed 5,000? Did the disciples remember the miracle where Jesus calmed the storm? Did the disciples remember any of the mighty wonders and deeds that Jesus had done? Of course not. So Jesus said, we need to feed these people. And they said, how are we going to do that? Maybe the same way that we did before. Almost immediately after this incident, the disciples would be with Jesus in a boat. And Jesus began to teach them in the boat. And he was using a one-word parable, leaven. He was teaching them about bread and leaven. But the disciples didn't understand that this was a parable. And so they were like, hey, did you bring the bread? Is he talking about bread? I didn't bring the bread. Was I supposed to bring the bread? Jesus rebukes them with a simple question. Don't you understand? And then Jesus starts to teach the disciples some really difficult things. He starts to teach them about his death, his suffering, and his resurrection. In response to this teaching, 
Peter, who's kind of acting as a spokesman for all the disciples, he rebukes Jesus. He says, you can't die. You're the Messiah. Messiahs don't die. That's not the way this works. Sometime later on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter sees the glory of Christ. He sees just a little tiny little speck of the eternal glory of Jesus, the Son of God. And his first reaction is to say, let's build some tents. Now there may be some theological significance there, but it's obvious that this wasn't the smartest thing for him to say because Mark almost offers an explanatory note. He says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then last week we saw the disciples fumble the ball once again. Their lack of prayer was in some way an evidence of a lack of faith. And when it came time to heal this boy who had epilepsy and who had a demon, they couldn't do it. And Jesus asked them, do you not understand? Now, after we've kind of surveyed this string of blunders from the disciples, and that's only the ones that we have written down. Surely there are many more. We can imagine that Jesus probably asked the disciples this question maybe a thousand times, maybe only in his head. Don't you understand? Don't you get it? But perhaps the, the worst blunder of all is the one that we read of this morning. It is a perfect storm of stupidity and selfishness and selective hearing and sinful ambition and jealousy all coming together to form the perfect storm of the disciples' stupidity. From this blunder, we learn much about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If we were in their shoes, we probably would have said and done the same things. Thankfully, we're not. We're here 2,000 years later reading about them in the Bible. And so we get to learn from their mistakes. Well, let's read about it together in Mark 9, starting in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. Word about the death camps had begun to spread. Not in all of Germany, just particularly in the ghettos of Germany where they had begun to quarantine the Jewish population. Not all of the Jews knew about these death camps, but many of them had begun to hear rumors. The really interesting thing about what was taking place in Germany at this time amongst the Jews is that many of the Jews who heard these rumors ignored them. They didn't believe them. They thought such a thing was too evil for humankind. 
Auschwitz, Dachau, Buchenwald. These were all labor camps, supposedly, that Jews were being sent to to labor, most of the time until their death. When rumors began to spread that the majority of the Jews were being shipped to these locations and that they were being exterminated upon arrival, well, that seemed a bit hard to believe. Now, supposedly, the Jews weren't being lined up and mass executed by gunfire like they were along the borders of Poland. Rather, they were, rumor said, being locked in rooms that functioned like large showers. And they were being exterminated behind those locked metal doors. Afterwards, their bodies were being burned. Now, imagine hearing rumors of such a place, and then days and weeks later, your neighbors begin to be snatched away from their apartments in the middle of the night. Early one morning, you hear dogs barking and boots on the ground. And you hear your neighbors being pulled out of their homes. And then next, you hear the knock on your door. The officer standing there tells you, it's time to go, you're going to get on a train for relocation. Are the rumors true? It seems now it matters more than ever. Men in black uniforms with lightning bolts on red bands around their arms and machine guns over their shoulders grab you and load you and push you onto trains. Jack packed so full that you have to stand for your seven to ten day journey as you travel. You finally get to the location, and you're still not certain. You step off the train, as you stand on the landing at the train station, you summon up the courage to ask a guard, where are we going? And he tells you, you're at Auschwitz, you're going to the labor camp. For these Jews, their end was not certain until they heard the door slammed shut behind them and they looked at the shower heads with no running water and they knew that their fate was at hand. We've seen in the book of Mark so far that Jesus is on a journey to his death. But unlike the Jews, he's not questioning, he's not wondering, there's no doubt. He knows that he's on his way to Jerusalem and what is going to happen at Jerusalem is going to be nothing short of his suffering and death. And he's taken the time to teach the disciples about this. Look at verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Jesus is teaching his disciples about his death as they're traveling. Now, as I read this, I don't think it's likely that it's just kind of this one-off conversation. It's probably a process. Talking as they travel, maybe resting from the afternoon sun under the shade of a tree, Jesus talks about his resurrection. Maybe over breakfast with James and John and Levi, he talks about how long it's going to take for him to resurrect. Maybe in a conversation with Andrew, and Andrew alone, Jesus talks about what it's going to look like for him to suffer. I don't really know. I can't fill out all the details, but I know that Jesus is intent on communicating about his suffering and his death to his disciples. These lessons were important for Jesus. Look at verse 30. 
It says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. You see, Jesus took the road less traveled because he wanted to avoid the crowds. He wanted to stay out of the spotlight. He, he didn't want to be found out. If you remember from the book of Mark, everywhere that Jesus goes, as soon as he down, touches down there, the fickle masses kind of swarm him, right? Heal my daughter. Cast this demon out. Teach us some more. And as great as healing sick people is, as important as it is to fight the powers of darkness and cast demons out of people, as amazing as the work of preaching the coming of the kingdom of God was for Jesus, it appears here that he has to set that aside for something more important. Jesus felt a priority to his disciples now. He knew that he was going to die soon. And so he wanted to make sure that his disciples were prepared for his death. You know, sometimes we have to choose between two good options. Wisdom sometimes is not just choosing between that which is bad and that which is good, but rather choosing between two good things. For Jesus, wisdom here meant setting aside some good endeavors for another good endeavor. Jesus asked himself the question, what would accomplish more after my death? Having catered to the fickle masses who sometimes receive me, but even then it's only superficial, or argue with Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, or, you know, what would be more beneficial, that or preparing the 12 men who would leave the church in his absence? As Jesus begins to teach the disciples about his coming death, he uses language like this. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Delivered. It could be translated, he will be traded, delivered. Well, the question is, if he's going to be delivered, who is he going to be delivered by? I mean, he uses the title for himself, the Son of Man, which is this really image-laden name that just conjures up you know, the Messiah, the mighty warrior king, the Son of Man. Who's going to deliver up the Messiah to die? Well, certainly the Jews. We know that the Jewish leaders have been butting heads with Jesus everywhere he goes. We saw earlier in the book of Mark that every time Jesus has an encounter with them, he embarrasses them, and at one point they're like, okay, we need to plot this guy's death. Enough is enough. We know that it's certainly Judas. You know, forget Benedict Arnold. Judas is the most famous traitor in all of human history. We all know that Judas Iscariot traded Jesus over for a couple of pieces of silver. Gentile rulers, perhaps we can say that Herod and Pilate handed Jesus over to the executioners. We could say that the centurions that nailed Jesus to the cross... They delivered Jesus up to his death. I think if you look at the story of the death of Jesus Christ, there's enough guilt to go around. Judas delivered Jesus into the hands of the Jews. The Jews delivered Jesus into the hands of the secular rulers. The Gentile authorities delivered Jesus over to the hands of the executioners. And the executioners delivered Jesus up to his death. But when Jesus is facing 
the men who have the authority to deliver him over to his death. He says things like this. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So this delivering act that Judas and the Jews and Pontius Pilate and the centurions, all this delivering, the ability for them to be able to do that, Jesus says, well, that's not really your ability. It was given to you. The only reason you can deliver me is because I've been delivered by somebody else. Well, who? In Acts 2, through 23, we, we read these words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter, in what is perhaps one of the greatest sermons ever preached, says that in some sense, God the Father delivered up God the Son to his death. The death of God the Son was always part of the plan. But what about human responsibility, you cry? What about the guilt of everyone who had a hand in it? Well, yes. The Jews are guilty. Herod and Pilate are guilty. Peter says, you crucified. And you killed by the hands of lawless men. The Jews are responsible. Judas is responsible. Yet God is the one who delivered Jesus into their hands. In Acts chapter 4, a group of believers is praying. And they pray these words. Listen to the language that they use. Or truly in this city where they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see? Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, Israelites, they're all guilty. But they did whatever God's hand had planned and predestined to take place. Do you remember Isaiah 53 that we read a couple weeks ago? What is perhaps one of the most jarring lines in that whole section of Scripture. We read that it, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Brothers and sisters, the death of Jesus Christ was not an afterthought in the mind of God. It was so much not an afterthought in the mind of God that Jesus is preparing his disciples for it as he's training them up. The death of the Son of God was something that God had planned to take place before the foundations of the world. And he set in motion the movements of destiny in order to bring that act to pass. Aren't these the kind of things that boggle our minds? Isn't this the kind of truth that we're just like, man, I can't wrap my head around it, you know? Two plus two equals four, I got that. String theory, all right, I'm starting to get a little lost. But the fact that everyone in the scenario is fully guilty and culpable for their part in delivering Jesus up to death, and yet it was God who was sovereign over it all, 
how do we wrap our minds around that? You know, I think when we read about stuff like this in the Bible, we stop and we're like, man, if only God was right here, right now, I could just ask him, you know? If only Jesus was standing in front of me. You're like, man, I can't wait to get to heaven until I can explore the depths of this more, like face-to-face with God. But here the disciples had Jesus in front of them. The text says that they didn't understand what the Lord was saying about his suffering, about his death, about his resurrection, about any of it. Look at verse 32. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, why were they afraid? There's probably a number of different reasons. Maybe one reason is the fact that they remembered how swiftly and severely Jesus had rebuked Peter not long ago. But the Lord rebuked Peter not because of his ignorance, but because of the way he handled his ignorance. Maybe they'd already been so ignorant on so many occasions that they were afraid to show that they were still ignorant. You know, it's like, we're not that bad. Maybe they were ashamed of their inability to grasp Jesus' teaching. Maybe they feared looking stupid. Maybe they were afraid that if they asked, Jesus was going to start talking more about having to pick up that cross. Regardless, they simply remained silent. But they weren't silent among themselves. Once Jesus kind of got back to the head of the pack and he was leading them along the road, they began to talk amongst themselves. Mm. And maybe argue would be a better word. Were they talking about, arguing about, the imminent death of their master? Were they talking about the way that Jesus had begun to refer to himself as the Son of Man, which was the official title of the Messiah? It's the first time in the book of Mark that you see it. Were they talking about resurrection or why Jesus had a very specific number of days? I mean, why three days? Why not four days? Why not one day? Were they arguing about these sorts of things as they were walking along the road? Well, the text says no, none of the above. Rather, the disciples were arguing about themselves. Look at verse 34. They were arguing about who was the greatest. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Jesus has been teaching them, this is the second time, by the way, about his soon coming death and suffering. And the disciples' response to that is to talk about themselves. Jesus says, hey, I love you, and I need you to know something. I'm going to die soon. And the disciples go, yeah, but who do you think is the greatest? Notice the contrast here between Jesus and the disciples. There's so many of them. Jesus, even in this passage of Scripture, scripture, he's comfortable with obscurity. He's okay with taking the back roads. He doesn't need to be in the spotlight. But the disciples, they do want the spotlight. They want prominence. They want importance. They want visibility. They want to know who's the most important. Who's going to be the most prominent? When everything goes down and all the dust settles, who's going to be at your right hand? Who's going to be the most important man in this whole equation? Jesus is still teaching the disciples about all of what is to come for him. His suffering and his glory. His death and his resurrection. But like a teenager, 
the disciples seem to have selective hearing. You know, when Jesus is talking about his suffering and his death, it's like they just, their ears just close. You know, they don't have time for it. But when Jesus talks about his glory, his resurrection, his ruling in this new kingdom, they're all ears. They're paying attention. Before Jesus began to teach them about his ministry, they didn't even have a category for a suffering Messiah. Do you remember that? It was all Daniel chapter 7. You know, the mighty warrior king on the steed, sword slaked in the blood of his enemies, ruling and governing by the authority and power of his might. And then Jesus comes along and he's like, yeah, but that's only one part of it. The first part, before we get to that glorious part, is this suffering part, Isaiah 53. You got Daniel 7, don't forget Isaiah 53. Jesus had to give them that category. Well, now that they have the category, they're simply ignoring it. So, says the disciple, when Jesus is raised again, and when he's ruling by the power of his might, I bet you I'll be his number two. I'll be the first in the government of the kingdom of God. No, says another, another disciple, I'm going to be number two. And the other disciple responds, well, I'll let you be assistant to the number two. Now, when you stop and consider the way that Jesus has been leading the disciples up to this point, it kind of makes sense. You can even understand a little bit. You know, we have to try to be sympathetic towards the disciples, right? So when Jesus went to go bring the little girl back to life, he only took three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. When Jesus goes up on this Mount of Transfiguration to have this incredible meeting with Elijah and Moses and to reveal some of his glory and to have God's voice thunder from the heavens down, and all, he only took three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John. If I were Peter, James, or John in this situation, I imagine I'd start to get a little swag in my walk. You know, my chest would kind of poke out a little bit more. My nose would be a little bit higher when I'd be talking to people. If Jesus would be saying something to disciples, I'd be like, yeah, Jesus, that's right. You tell them what we're thinking. If I were the other disciples, I might begin to battle with some feelings of resentment, bitterness, jealousy towards Jesus and the other disciples. I think it makes sense that they're wrestling through these kinds of emotions and that they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. But just because something is understandable does not mean that it's excusable. Jesus, with the patience that only God in the flesh could muster, for the 1500th time, takes the disciples' ignorance and uses it as an opportunity to teach them and to love them. So, he sits down, which is what teachers would do at that time. And he calls the disciples to himself. He gathers the twelve around them and he begins to teach them about what true greatness is. Read verse 35. It says, And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. What do you think that greatness looks like? Our President Donald Trump was recently voted into office running on a platform promising to make America great again. 
I wonder if anybody during that time stopped and asked what that word even means, especially in relation to America. America great like when we had slaves? What do you mean by great? Does it matter if you know what you mean when you say the word great? Is greatness about prestige? Is it about power? Maybe greatness is about power. Greatness is a word that seems kind of hard to define, although I think we all know it when we're in the presence of it, right? Like Michael Jordan with a basketball, a thermonuclear weapon exploding and mushrooming up into the atmosphere, standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Greatness. As humans, there's something innate in us that at our best leads us to aspire to greatness. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just like most good things that God has given us, on this side of the fall, affected by sin, it usually goes haywire. Sin has really messed up the way that we understand greatness, which means it's messed up the way that we go about achieving greatness. You see, God created us to be great. God created us to be kings and queens on the earth. In Genesis, after God created man, we read these words. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We were blessed by God to be great. We were created in His image and likeness. And then we were giving this world to rule in a way that reflects His glory and image. And after God blessed us, He told us, Represent me well. Subdue the earth for your good purposes. Dominate the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. Build cities. Procreate. Be great. But you know what happened after that, right? And not long after. Satan came and he deceived man. One of the ways that he deceived them was so crafty that it's almost hard to believe that they fell for it. But when I think about my own stupidity, I think, yes, then it makes sense. You see, Satan came into the garden and he said, Don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to be like God? But God already said that they were like God. He said, I've made you in my image and in my likeness. They were already like God. What Satan really meant was, don't you want to be God? And such is the greatness that man has been striving after ever since. We have not been trying to be great like God in the way that he calls us to be great. We have been trying to be great by being God himself usurping his throne. And that has only ironically led us further and further away from greatness. In Genesis 11, not long after this, we see mankind coming together using all of their new technology to ascend heaven with the Tower of Babel in the vainest of all attempts to conquer his throne and be great. Later, God would gather for himself a nation. And when he gathered that nation, he made them a promise. He said, I'm going to be your God and you will be a great nation. 
But it seems like for the Israelites, their idea of greatness was often not in line with what God's idea of greatness was. They too often took their cues from false gods and from the cultures around them. They were influenced by all the wrong people in the wrong ways. And so they began to pursue the wrong goal in the wrong way. And whether they succeeded or failed, they were becoming increasingly less great. You know, the theme of greatness is still prominent when Jesus arrives on the scene. And still no one understands it. Satan tries to tempt Jesus, like Adam and Eve before him, to pursue his vision of greatness. And Adam, uh, Satan's vision of greatness is, you can rule all the nations of the earth and be the mighty, conquering king, just like the Messiah, but you won't have to suffer. You won't have to die. I'll give it to you. All you have to do is worship me. You know, everywhere that Jesus goes, he he calls the people that he heals or preaches to to be silent about his mighty deeds. Well, why? Because they had the wrong understanding of greatness. They thought that if this is the Messiah, he's here to wage war. He's here to enact political action. He's here to raise up armies. They didn't understand what the Messiah was. Is he not a mighty warrior king who conquers like Xerxes and who governs like Julius Caesar? As Jesus begins to talk about the apex of his ministry, his suffering and his death, Peter, the disciple, rebukes him. He says, that's not what a Messiah does. Messiahs don't die. That's not greatness. Now, commentators note here, almost every single one of them, that Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples for the desire to be first. It says that they don't rebuke Jesus, excuse me, that that Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples for the desire to be great. But I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. I think we, we see here, Jesus is saying, this is what greatness looks like. And you desire it because you don't understand it. If you knew what greatness looked like, you wouldn't want it. If you knew what it meant to be first in the kingdom of heaven, you'd probably rather be last. Jesus says that the Son of Man, the Messiah of God's people, the one who will resurrect to greatness and glory, has to suffer and die first. This is greatness, says Jesus. But the disciples, yet again, they fail to make the connection. And so they argue about greatness amongst themselves because they don't understand what it is. They don't understand what it looks like. You know, greatness looks more like a bloody corpse hanging from a cross than anything else. Greatness is about lowliness. And it doesn't get much more lowly than dying a criminal, a slave's death on a cross. Greatness is about being last, says Jesus. The disciples think that greatness looks like the prince who's sitting next to the king's throne as the king rules, when in fact Jesus says greatness looks more like the slave who comes and fills the king's goblet. 
Brothers and sisters, what would it look like for you to aspire to greatness? The perfect family? Tons of money? The greatest career? You know, many pastors would encourage their sheep and do encourage their sheep to think like that. They say, be great! And you claim it and you name it and you pursue it and you get all these things and this stuff. But their definition of greatness looks more like the world's definition, the disciples' definition. It looks more like Satan's definition of greatness than Jesus' definition. If, if we could invent our own God, what would he be like? The good news is that we don't really have to wonder for that long because humans have been inventing their own gods since the beginning. From Scientology to the Greek and Roman pantheon, we can kind of see what gods would be like if we made them in our image. If you just look at the Roman gods, you see, well, they look surprisingly like us. These gods are capricious. They're disinterested. They're selfish. They're cruel. You know, they just, they look just like us. There's nothing God-like about them. In the same way, if we can invent a Savior, His understanding of greatness would probably be just like ours. Greatness would involve the pursuit of money and women and respect and power and other things along those lines. But Jesus' understanding of greatness looks like this. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' understanding of greatness looks more like a slave than a CEO. It looks more like a child than a king. If anyone would be first, he must be a servant of all. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to aspire to Jesus' understanding of what greatness is. Not the world's. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you should know that we as Christians think that the very first step in following Jesus is to admit that we're not great. Is to admit that, as a matter of fact, we are the opposite of great. We as Christians think the first step in following Jesus is to admit the fact that because of our rebellion against a holy, loving, righteous, gracious, kind God, that in His sight we are sinful. That word may not mean much to you, but it means everything bad that you can possibly think that it might mean. It means that we're lost and without hope in this world. I bet that's offensive to you. And you've got company. You know, the disciples would have been offended in the text this morning as Jesus told them that they had to be like servants. Nobody wants to be a servant. You know, self-important and self-righteous people. We don't see ourselves that way. 
But the only way to follow Jesus, the truly great one, is to admit that we are not great. It's to admit that we are in a lowly state and to cry out to him and to ask him to be our greatness. The gospel does not say that if you try really, really hard and come to church and read your Bible and pray and give money to poor people, that you can become great. The gospel of Jesus Christ says if you tried every second of every single day for the rest of your life to be great, you'd still fall 10,000 feet short of it. The gospel says that our only hope is that Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He was greatness in the flesh. He perfectly obeyed the Father. He perfectly walked in the will of the Father. He perfectly obeyed all of God's laws and met all of God's righteous demands. And he died for us. And, and the penalty that's due to us because of our sin, because of our rebellion, he took that on himself. And now he freely offers us greatness. Not our own greatness, but his. Not our righteousness, but his. Not our perfection, because we don't have any perfection. We can never be great. You know, we, we can't run on a campaign of make humanity great again never going to happen. But we can be made great in Christ Jesus. And the ongoing part of the gospel that's so amazing is that the Spirit of God lives in us to gradually conform us more and more and more to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. So that even though you'll never be perfectly great, in 10 years, hopefully you'll be a little bit greater than you were before. And then the end of the gospel is that one day, one day you will close your eyes and you will open them in glory. And you will be with the Father. You will be with greatness forever and ever and ever. And in that day you will serve and you will be delighted to serve. As Jesus' disciples, we should not abandon hopes of greatness. Or rather, we should mold our understanding of greatness into what greatness is in the mind of God. Our understanding of greatness should be that which we see in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what greatness is, look away from the things and the people of this world and look towards the bloody cross of Christ. More than that, we should not pursue greatness the way that the world pursues it. The world pursues greatness through violence, through military might, through political action, through conniving and subterfuge and flattery and maneuvering. And it goes about pursuing greatness in this way because it doesn't understand what greatness is. If it did understand what greatness was, it would never try to pursue it through this. It would try to serve, but it can't because it doesn't have the category. You know, if you have a worldly understanding of what greatness is, you will read Jesus' word words in the text today and you'll be left scratching your chin. Well, how does being a servant make you great? Well, you'd understand if you knew what greatness was. Up to this point, I haven't even defined greatness. I do what a lot of people do. I kind of give word pictures so that you can kind of latch onto them. And through those pictures, you kind of have a definition in your mind. But I wanted to give you a kind of a one to two sentence definition. Greatness is living your life in accordance with the will of the Great One. 
To be great is to be like God. Not to be God, but to be like God. Greatness is to reflect the character of God in this fallen world. The great irony of the gospel is that in order to give us the ability to do that, Christ had to become nothing. Even though he was first, he had to become last. Even though he was from heaven, he had to descend into this fallen world and even down into the depths of Sheol. Even though he was God, he had to become sin. And even though he reigned eternally as a king, he had to come and take the form of a slave. So anyone who wants to be great, who wants to pursue greatness, who wants to be like God, needs to look at Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. What is God like, you ask? Look no further than Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus, in his greatness, is telling you today that God is a servant. You don't really hear that talked about much in his attributes, you know, sovereignty, omniscience, omnipresence, all these other big words that make you sound smarter than you really are. He's a servant. Do you think you're better than God? Is a servant greater than his master? If the God of the universe who flung it into existence with a flick of his pinky served sinners, how can we not do the same? So again, I ask, what are you doing to pursue greatness? Are you waking up early, going to bed late, taking extra classes, taking charge, earning money, making power moves? You know, none of those things are inherently bad, but they won't necessarily make you great. What about stacking chairs after church? What about making meals? What about fixing the heater in the children's nursery? What about praying for your brothers and sisters? Visiting the sick? What about service? When we think about greatness, we tend to think about men in capes. But when Jesus wanted to show us what greatness was, he put on the uniform of a slave and washed his servants' feet. You know, the greatest people I know are those who have dedicated their lives to serving others. Moms who have given their lives to raise their children. Pastors who have given their lives to train up leaders in the church. Men who have set aside lucrative careers and salaries to take positions in public service to serve the greater good out of love for their neighbor. Or other men who hate their jobs but have stayed in it because they make such a lucrative salary that they're able to give generously to gospel work all around the world. When I think about greatness, I think less about men like LeBron James and more about men like Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think about men like Grant Miller, Women like Katherine Berger. Children, children, listen up. This is your time in the sermon. All the children, listen up. My hope and prayer for you is that as you grow up and you think about what it means to be great, that you don't think about sports figures necessarily or musicians or actors. My hope and prayer is that you think about your mother 
and or your Father who have loved you and served you selflessly and tirelessly and faithlessly for years on end and who have dedicated their lives to training you up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, who fed you and gave you those spankings, did all the things that are really hard for moms and dads to do. You know, we live in an age with podcasts at our fingertips. And many amazingly gifted men become our heroes. I think about John Piper and Mark Dever in my own life. But brothers and sisters, my hope and prayer is that your heroes in the faith are not necessarily the men and the women with the biggest platforms. I hope that you think just as much about faithful pastors who serve for 30 years in a small church doing God's work where no one will ever see them, where no article will ever be written about them. They're not going to have a respected blog. They're not going to be invited to conferences. They're not going to write books that sell 100,000 copies. They're just going to faithfully lead God's people to glory. Is that not greatness? When you think about greatness, I hope you think more about Spencer Miller than Steph Curry. I, think, I hope that you think more about the person who's serving in our nursery right now than you do about Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. Who are you serving? Is your life dedicated to yourself? To your ambition? Or is it dedicated to serving God by serving others? Soon after this little lesson in discipleship, Jesus will give the disciples a living, breathing parable. He'll grab a child, he'll hold him in his arms, and he'll tell the disciples something about being last of all. And we'll look at that more next week. Now, join me in praying and asking the Lord to help us actually believe this and live it out in our lives. Father, everything that we've seen this morning is contrary to our nature corrupted by sin. We pray that you would help us to not think like the world thinks, but to think like you think and to mold and shape our categories so that they align with you and with your character. Father, we pray that as we depart from here, going back out into the world, that the world will look at us and see us and smell us and just know that there's something different about us. Know that the way that we're pursuing eternally weighty things that they would know that there's something special about that, that they would be attracted to it, and that we would be free to speak the gospel with them without fear, but to do it with boldness and wisdom. We pray that you would bring many people to yourself in this city, even through the members of this local church. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.